Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. talking about in the first segment of the show is an excellent book i got if you're a dodger if you're not even a dodger fan if you're into history especially in la and it's so funny because this book i read it a couple of weeks ago but what's going on right now in this country as far as race relations you know incidents of you know this of violence history repeats itself and this book talks about all of that and the author of this superb book is on the line right now. And I'm just happy to have Michael Leahy on this program. And the name of the book is The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent Sixties and the Los Angeles Dodgers. How are you doing, Michael? Greg, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being on this evening and just uh, writing a superb book. Because this book really, it you know, and I, first all, I got to say, I'm from Washington, D.C. So when I, you know, when the publisher sent me this book, Harper Publishing, they sent me this book, and I saw it was going to be covering one of my favorite teams, of, you know, of the 60s when I was growing up, the Dodgers, but in particular, one of my favorite players, and still one of my all-time favorite players, the great Maury Wills. I was just said, I got to read this book, because Maury is, 
people don't, you know, I don't think people understand the greatness of Maury Wills of that era and how he revolutionized baseball at that time. And it's really, if I can say, and I hope this, I hope your book brings back a new appreciation of Wills, as well as other players that are mentioned in here, but Wills in particular, because I really believe, and I know you wrote an article, what, eight years ago or so about why Maury Wills should be Mm -hmm. in the Hall of Fame, and I really believe that he should be in there. Right. Well, Greg, he is one of seven principal characters in the book, which, as you said, is entitled The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent Sixties and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And all this began for me back in 2009, Greg. I had just finished covering the 2008 presidential campaign for the Washington Post, and I really wanted a break from writing about social issues and politics for a bit. And I thought there would be nothing more fun and at at the same time more meaningful to do than come back to the land of my youth, Los Angeles, and uh, do a story about Maury Wills, who I long thought uh, belonged in the Hall of Fame. And uh, you alluded at the top of your show, Greg, to uh, uh, the current challenges that this country is facing uh, in terms of uh, issues related to the police and uh, black community concerns about police conduct and misconduct. Uh, And um, it does call to mind uh, the challenges that tens of millions of African-Americans, of course, faced in the 1960s, including prominent major league stars. And there's probably no episode more illustrative of that uh, than one involving Maury himself, Greg, in 1962. In 1962, Maury was chasing Ty Cobb's single-season stolen base record. And, of course, in 1962, this meant that it was 12 years before Henry Aaron would eclipse Babe Ruth's lifetime home run record. So Maury Wills was the first African-American star to to challenge the revered record of a white baseball legend. And predictably, uh, perhaps, Maury began receiving a great deal of hate mail. And uh, uh, it was the same period, Greg, when his immortal teammate, uh, the, the great Hall of Fame pitcher Sandy Koufax was receiving hate mail of his own in the form of anti-Semitic letters. So the two great teammates, these two men were very close, Maury Wills and Sandy Koufax, struck upon a very novel idea, which was that each man would open the other's mail and sift out the hate mail. And predictably, Greg being ball players. Uh, There was some ball player humor involved in this. Maury would say something to Sandy along the lines of, oh, man, you don't want to go near this letter, Sandy. And Sandy would say, Maury, you don't want to read this one. Don't get near this one. And yet the two men had each other's back. They were devoted to one another. They protected one another. And uh, Maury went on that season to break Ty Cobb's single-season stolen base record revolutionized the game of baseball, become the National League's most valuable player 
uh, that year and really paved the way for future speedsters of the game, uh, great base dealers like Lou Brock, Tim Raines, and Ricky Henderson. So Maury Wills was nothing less, Greg, than a transformational force in baseball. And uh, certainly I I hope that uh, one day uh, we'll see him elected to baseball's Hall of Fame. I really hope so. I've been hoping that for years. Uh, I had the pleasure also, you know, growing up in D.C., my in uh, at Bertie Backus Junior High School back in 66 and 67, my my science teacher was his brother, Robert Wells. Mm-hmm. And I would and I would always bug him about his brother more. And I think and he would tell me some things, but I believe he was a little upset that more at that time, more was about to be traded and was traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I could say, you know, when I think back to it, I think that his brother did not, you know, he didn't really want to talk a lot about what was going on with that. So he kind of steered, you know, he more or less wanted to talk about the the glory days with the Dodgers. Right. Well, I can certainly tell you about that episode, Greg. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, uh, along the way in this incredible career he had, Uh, In the 1966 season, he played with a bad knee. Uh, The Dodgers uh, went on that year to uh, win the National League pennant. It was the third time in four years that they won the National League pennant, Greg, and they won two World Series in that uh, that period. In 1966, won the National League pennant uh, yet again and were defeated in the World Series by the Baltimore Orioles in a four-game sweep. Afterwards, the last thing Maury wanted to do was go off to Japan with the team to play in a series of exhibition games. And he really pleaded with the uh, team's front office to, uh, to excuse him from these exhibition games, which, of course, were largely meaningless other than uh, exposing Dodger baseball to uh, baseball fans in Japan. But Dodger management was insistent that he go. Maury did go, hurt himself uh, while over there, aggravated this knee injury while over there, pleaded uh, with Dodger management to allow him to return to Los Angeles to get the knee treated. Management uh, refused, and Maury at that point simply left. He simply bolted from Japan and uh, Uh, Not too long after that, uh, the Dodger owner, Walter O'Malley, gave his general manager, Buzzy Gavese, orders to trade Wills for what management regarded as insubordination, but which we can see in retrospect was simply the uh, effort of a star player to get the, uh, the treatment he needed for a very serious knee injury. The Dodgers in time saw the errors of their way, and uh, in 1969, the Dodgers traded to get Maury back on the team, uh, where Maury concluded his team his career after the 1972 season. More, you know, just an amazing, you know, Maury. I really emphasize, listeners, and you can call in at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. Six seven five eight three one five. I'm talking to the author of the great book, uh, The Last Innocence, Michael Leahy. And you have to really, well, you know, Maury was a you know, huge star, but that Dodger team, and you, you know, you talk about in the book how big a 
celebrities the Dodgers were, not only Koufax, not only Wills, but you're talking about Tommy Davis. You're talking, you know, guys who are totally forgotten in a sense. Wes Parker, which I am really, you know, we talk about the issue of racism cropping up, but there's a whole, you know, when you talk about Wes Parker in the book and you talk about what he went through, I was just, I was floored. I was just amazed the depression, the anguish that he went through in his youth, considering the fact that, you know, you would think that he would be the last person to go through this, but talk a little bit about the first baseman, Wes Parker, because it's really an amazing story how he basically has, you know, survived all that, but it's just, it's just something. Well, thanks for bringing uh, the subject of Wes up, Greg. Uh, He is a fascinating character. Uh, And as you uh, rightly point out, uh, he led a life that no one in Los Angeles knew about uh, at the time, not even his closest teammates. Wes hid all of this from him. And his big secret was this. Wes had grown up in a very affluent neighborhood in Los Angeles, a community called Brentwood. He grew up among motion picture stars and business titans. His father himself was a business titan. And uh, so from the outside looking in, uh, it it, uh, looked as though Wes Parker had the idyllic youth. But what no one knew was that he was subjected to emotional and physical abuse in that home. And uh, for Wes Parker, uh, uh, baseball proved to be nothing less than his salvation. His self-esteem could not have been lower, and he felt as if he did not succeed at baseball. He might have nothing else. He did not want to rely on his parents' money. He wanted to get as far away from them as possible. And so he, he, Wes put it aptly. He said, whereas other players were playing for a spot on a team and to earn a decent salary, he felt as though he was playing for his life. And uh, uh, he, his, when I read that, that was, I mean, it's just sad, you know, when you describe yeah. it that way. Man, when yeah. I first read and that. The pressure, yeah, and the pressure, the pressure. Uh, trailed him throughout his career. There were moments, for instance, in the 1965 season, Greg, by which time Wes was the starting first baseman uh, for the Dodgers on his way to becoming a six-time gold glove first baseman. Uh, There were times when Wes would be at home in Los Angeles uh, in an afternoon uh, trying to get ready for an evening game. And the pressure was such, the fear of failing was such that he could barely bring himself to uh, lift himself out of his chair and drive to the ballpark. There were afternoons when he wondered whether this was all worth it, because if he failed on the field, he thought it would be the end of his life. And uh, it took all uh, his strength, all his courage to push off of a chair, leave his home, climb in that car and make the roughly 40-minute drive to Dodger Stadium. And he shared these pressures with no one because he was concerned that if his teammates knew about his family history and knew the depths of his despair uh, uh, and the pressure he felt, that they would lose confidence in him. 
So he bottled all this up in an ear when players could not turn to team psychologists. There was no such thing as a team psychologist in that era. Uh, the one player West could turn to, or the rather the one person West could turn to at that time was his younger brother, Lynn. And, right. uh, uh, and with Lynn, West got through this, uh, but it was always a challenge. And so it makes it all the remar- more the remarkable that West thrived on the field, was this six-time gold glove uh, first baseman. And uh, in 1970, in addition to being a great fielder, he became a, a tremendous hitter, hitting 319 and leading the National League in doubles. So, as, as you point out, Greg, he's a, uh, he's a he's he's an intriguing story. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. You know, as for all the seven players that you feature in there, and I'm glad that you feature those guys. You know, besides Wills, Parker, obviously Sandy Koufax, but you got also Jeff Torborg. You know, the catcher who became a manager. Um, Tommy Day was one of my other favorite players back then. And, you know, Dick Trzewski. Now, I was like shocked. I said, Dick Trzewski? But I never knew he was uh, Sandy Koufax's best, you know, best buddy on the team. His best friend and and the person uh, who helps to provide a window on in this book onto what Koufax was like. The pressures that Sandy felt, uh, Sandy's... Uh, 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 dream of getting away from the crowds and uh, finding refuge uh, uh, away from away from the limelight. Uh, Dick help, helps to open a window onto that, and he was also what I like about his presence in the book. Greg is that among these stars, Dick Trzewski was this selfless ball player who was largely in a utility role. But in key games in the World Series, when someone was injured, could be counted upon to uh, come off the bench, come on to the field and be a star. And another player uh, uh, who served this role as something along the lines of a Cinderella story was Lou Johnson. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and you had mentioned Tommy Davis earlier, the great National League batting champion in consecutive seasons in 62 and 63. Well, in the 1965 season, Tommy Davis was injured in a game against the Giants on a bad slide uh, in early May. And Lou Johnson, who had spent most of his 20s in the minor leagues and who had decided at the beginning of the 1965 season that his season in at the Dodgers AAA Spokane Club would be the his last season in baseball was called up by the Dodgers uh, in the wake of Tommy Davis's injury. Uh, Lou had already vowed he was getting out of baseball at season's end. He was going to get a regular job. He wasn't going to play another minor league season. But when Tommy Davis fell victim to an injury. Buzzy Bavese and the Dodgers called the Triple A Spokane Club. Lou Johnson was brought up, and Lou Johnson became a World Series hero that year, hitting what proved to be the game winning home run in Game Seven of the World Series against the Minnesota Twins. Uh, Sandy Koufax that day threw a three hit shutout. 
the Dodgers won two to nothing, and Lou Johnson overnight became something of a Los Angeles folk hero. And if there's a Cinderella story in the book, it's certainly Lou Johnson. And, and the thing I didn't know about Lou until I read your book is that, um, you know, I always saw him when I was growing up, he was this guy that was always joking when he was interviewed or you just see him smiling, but there was this rage. Absolutely. Talks, I mean, and talk about that because he was, it's not so much because he never made it until late in his life in his baseball career, but just the rage as, as far as being African-American in that time period. Talk and, a little more about that. Absolutely, Greg. And growing up where he did, uh, Lou, Lou Johnson grew up in Kentucky, where his great dream as a youth, Greg, was, was not to be a baseball star, but to be a basketball star. He right. dreamt of, of being a star on the University of Kentucky's famed uh, basketball team. And, uh, but, of course, the problem, the intractable, intractable problem for all African-American athletes at that time was that the University of Kentucky basketball team was segregated, was all white. The team was coached by Adolph Rupp, an avowed racist. And uh, so neither Lou Johnson nor any other high school star uh, was going to be recruited to play basketball at the University of Kentucky. So what did Lou Johnson do next? Lou Johnson transferred his dreams to baseball. He had never played high school baseball. He had played, if you can believe this, Greg, he had played softball. But he had never played. That's baseball. what I couldn't believe when I, I you know, serious, God, yeah. he'd never played baseball I'm, in high school. Right, not yeah, not and and he had never played baseball on a serious uh, on a on a in a on a serious basis. But he had such athletic aptitude, uh, such gifts uh, that those gifts were transferable to baseball. Uh, uh, he demonstrated his prowess at baseball quickly enough that he was signed to professional contracts, but he was, for the most part, again, a minor league player uh, throughout the 20s. But wherever he went, you know, in in these minor league systems, he was subjected to racist taunts. Uh, Minor league ballparks in that era were particularly vile places. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, racist taunts, uh, were common in many of these ballparks, and Lou received more than his share of those. So he did, as you rightly point out, have a great deal of rage and, uh, uh, and, and spoke about that candidly for my book and also said that his time with the Dodgers uh, was transformative in the sense that he came together uh, with many wonderful teammates, black and white, uh, who helped him through that. And one of his closest friends on the team was Sandy Koufax. And to this day, he, he said, you know, the moment he arrived on that team, Sandy made clear to sports writers and anyone else who would listen that the Dodgers would not have won the pennant in 1965, let alone reach the World Series unless Lou Johnson had been a part of that club. Uh, Lou's, Lou's contributions to the team that year as the starting left fielder who replaced Tommy Davis were indispensable. And, and uh, Lou, to this day in Los Angeles, 
is a is a beloved figure. He certainly is, and you know the most beloved figure of that team is you just talk about Sandy Koufax. And you know, reading and I've read things about Koufax, but reading your book, Sandy Koufax comes across as almost like a I want to say an Obi Wan Kenobi character. Like he's this mystic, you know. He's 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 part of the team, but he's not really. If I'm, you know, if you know what I mean, he's he's this whole he's way above everyone, but not because of ego or anything. It's just something different. And t- and talk about like, Kofax. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, uh, and no and uh, no one had quite put it that way to me before, but I think. Uh, I think that's right, Greg. I think you're on to something. There was his his gifts, his supremacy did set him apart uh, from everyone. It is true. It's, it's a great point. It set him aside from his rivals, set him aside uh, from his teammates either, even. He was, if you think of a planetary system, he was kind of the sun around which all these planets right. revolve. And uh, uh, and he was um, he was a if there's something that that is sometimes overlooked about Sandy, it's just how fierce a competitor he was. He had this uh, soft spoken personality, uh, particularly in public, um, but no one uh, was a fiercer competitor, a a quality that was sometimes uh, uh, lost or, or hidden from the public. And there was one game that was a particular example of that, and it was a 1965 game, Greg, against uh, the St. Louis Cardinals. Oh, the Lou Brock Lou story. Brock, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. And uh, Lou Brock, the great base dealer, who, who at that time was a very young man, Roy Will still led the, uh, still led the league in steals, but Lou Brock was just a couple years away at that point from uh, uh, from taking over from Maury when Maury's legs would when Maury would become a little older by the '67 season by the '66 season actually, and um, uh, and so Lou Brock was on the cusp of all that, and there was a game against against the Dodgers where Lou Brock got aboard in the first inning against Koufax uh, and uh, promptly stole first base. And, uh, and, and I should say he got aboard by bunting to get to, to begin the game against Koufax, then promptly stole second base and then took a lead off second base and was from the point of view of Dodgers in the dugout seemed to be dancing a little bit off second base as if to signal he was going to try to steal third. He then did steal third base. And it was Koufax, Koufax in the mind of his catcher, uh, one of the two Dodger catchers, Jeff Torborg, uh, uh, felt a little embarrassed. And uh, the next time Lou Brock was up at bat, Sandy Koufax, who almost never threw at anybody. In fact, no one to this day, Greg, can remember Sandy Koufax throwing at anybody else intentionally. Sandy plunked Lou. And um, so it did show that there were limits to Koufax's forbearance. 
uh, he could be, this great competitor could be pushed to do the same things as baseball mortals if he got angry enough. And, uh, but that fierce competitive streak, uh, which exhibited itself against Brock, could also serve him so well in other situations. In that game we were talking about where Lou Johnson hit the game-winning home run in the seventh game of the 1965 World Series, Sandy was asked to pitch that game on only two days rest, Greg. And uh, I think what separates the outstanding pitcher from the immortal pitcher what separates some of the great pitchers of today's game from an immortal like Koufax is that the immortals can regularly deliver on the biggest athletic stages uh, where the stakes are the highest right. and the, and the athlete looks like uh, he's up against uh, uh, invincible forces, whether it's Muhammad Ali uh, or, or, or Michael Jordan or a great tennis player, Sandy Koufax on that day operating on only two days rest through a three hit shutout in the Dodgers one, two to nothing. So there's been nothing, there's been nothing like him, Greg, I think before or since. And, and talk about too, um, during that world series, how he's posing for a picture with Jim Cott, the uh, Minnesota twins left-handed starter. And Cott steps oh, yeah. away from him. I mean, it's, but it tells you how much, you know, the preparations Kofax had to go through in order to pitch. And talk about that. Right. Sandy would just cake his left arm, his shoulder, uh, with this bomb, uh, this, this heat treatment to get this, this left arm loose. It was, it, was, it was very difficult for Sandy to get loose. He had an arthritic, of course, left elbow that would require him to retire at the end of the 1966 season. And so just getting loose before a game uh, was difficult for him, particularly in 65 and 66, as he was closing in on his season's ends, uh, his uh, career's end. So he would have his upper back and his left arm just covered with this bomb called capsule. And, and, uh, and it, it, it was so hot it was so hot, Greg, that sometimes people who would put on Koufax's sweatshirt, borrow Koufax's sweatshirt that had been placed over the arm, over the capsule, and therefore would put on this sweatshirt, and it would still have some of this bomb on it, this, this capsule. And, and these guys would feel their arms burning. It was that hot. And it also had a terrible stench, just a terrible stench. And uh, and Jim Cott, who was pitching for the Minnesota Twins in Game Seven, uh, was standing next to Sandy, uh, as you referenced, for pre-game photographs uh, before Game Two and Game Seven. And uh, uh, Cott said the the smell was so strong that that. He said he he said involuntarily it just came out of him. He said, "Whoa!" and pulled away because the stench, the smell of this stuff, was overpowering, got in Cott's nostrils, and uh, and he had to pull away. But Cott said it gave him a greater appreciation than ever 
for just what Koufax had to go through simply to be able to go out on the mound and pitch any game at all. And Cott was somebody who over time became a huge admirer of Koufax's. And uh, the two men ran into each other many years after Sandy's retirement. And Sandy, for your younger viewers who might not know, Greg, Sandy had to retire at age 30 after the 1966 season. And after a season where he had won the Cy Young Award, won 27 games. So he, he retired for health reasons. Uh, doctors had told him he might lose the use of that arm for practical purposes uh, if he didn't retire at that, at that point. Uh, but Sandy Koufax retired as the greatest pitcher in the game, 27 Victory Cy Young Award. And so Cott, you know, Cott asked him years later, said, and he, you know, he said to Sandy, you know, it was just too bad you had to retire with the arthritic elbow. If there had been some surgical procedure that might have been able to alleviate some of your pain and enabled you to pitch longer, would you have wanted to do that beyond age 30? And I think the great myth about Sandy all these years, Greg, has been that Sandy was sort of a reluctant warrior, might right wasn't all that crazy about baseball. It wasn't a great loss for him to leave baseball. It's all a myth because Sandy made it clear to Cott that, oh, my gosh, yes, he would have loved to have pitched longer. Yes, he would have availed himself of, of whatever medical procedure might have been available had there been something that might have been able to treat him. So it was, it was, you know, it was hard for Sandy to leave the game at age 30. But as he said to his close friend, Dick Trzewski, on the day he retired, his close friend Trzewski was living across the country at that point, gave Sandy a call, called him Rumi, always called him, and he said, Rumi, is this true? Are you really retiring? And Sandy said, yes. And he just said, you know, I'm in too much pain. The arm's hurting too much. So he retired reluctantly, and of course, uh, all of baseball uh, 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 lost uh, uh, this immortal figure who was the pitching equivalent, I think it's fair to say, Greg, of Babe Ruth. I think he, to this day, he's the pitching equivalent of Ruth. Yeah, and this is not in your book, and you might know this story, but I think it's, what, maybe five years ago, but I think probably more like 10, that Koufax got on the mound during spring training with the Dodgers. And he, they yeah. said he was, throwing, he was throwing like over 85 miles an hour. Uh, the story I heard, Greg, and I would love to run that. I, I hear varying accounts of this story. Right. I've, I've heard some. I've heard something akin to the same story I've, you've heard. The, the story I've heard, and again for your listeners, I have no idea whether this story is true, and, and which is why it's not in the book. Um, that there was a the Dodgers found themselves in a World Series, and uh, uh, Sandy started throwing batting practice. And as the story goes, and you never know whether these things might be slightly apocryphal, slight, right. a yarn that might have been slightly stretched. But as the story goes, uh, uh, Sandy by this time anywhere from twelve to fifteen years removed from his retirement. Uh, started throwing some batting practice, and uh, uh, the Dodgers 
the Dodger regulars who were trying to hit off him finally just got out of the cage and said, you know, sort of enough is enough. He's throwing too hard. And yeah, the estimates were Greg, or, you know, I don't think anybody had a jugs gun on him, but experienced baseball eyes uh, were saying that it looked as though he was throwing in the high eighties for, so, you know, somebody who by then was 15 years removed from having pitched baseball. And, uh, uh, and the amazing thing was that none of us, you know, not you, not me, not anyone who heard this tale was was particularly surprised. You know, it's well, that's the whole I mean, point. I think all of us <laughs> Yeah, I think all of us think it's kind of conceivable that the immortal Kofax might have been able to do it. You know, he was he is Ruthian in that way, you know, or maybe we should say Kofaxian in that way. You know? Right. It's like um a couple of years ago, um Julius Irving, Dr. J was on YouTube and he dunked the basketball and a lot of people were raving about it. I said, Well he's Dr. J. He could do it when he's a hundred. He'll always be <laughs> right. you know, he's just gifted. And that's how I look at with Sandy Kofax. Now, I want to add, you know, one thing about the book, and listeners, you can call in again at 424-675-8315. We're about to wrap this up. But, I, you know, this, when you talk about the 65 season, it's really amazing because you intertwine that with what was going on in Watts with the, right. you know, with the insurrection in Watts. And I want you to talk about, you know, Maury Wills, um, Rose, John Roseboro, and Lou Johnson, how they had to, you know, kind of maneuver, because at that time, they wanted to say, you know, African-American athletes did want to talk about social issues, but a lot of them, unless they were Jim Brown and later on uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Muhammad Ali, obviously, a lot of baseball players didn't say anything. And just talk about their feelings at that moment. It's true. I mean, uh, um, and right, I mean that's absolutely right. And let me contrast base the, uh, the the attitude of baseball players in that regard to Muhammad Ali uh, for a second, who was who, who who I write about at some length in the book, and who, in my judgment, is arguably the most important athlete of the 20th century. You know, Ali was the first athlete, really black or white, to assert himself and say. I am going to speak out about what I believe is just and unjust. And, uh, and Ali served as an example for, for so many athletes, black and white in that regard. Uh, in 1965, however, as you point out, Greg, the reaction of athletes uh, black and white was quite muted on social issues, whether it was the civil rights movement, or the Vietnam War, uh, reactions were muted. Um, to go back a year just before, a year before Watts, uh, in in nineteen early nineteen sixty four, uh, you had the strange situation, and Maury Wills dealt with this in nineteen sixty two as well, where African American athletes could find themselves on the cover of prominent national magazines like Sports Illustrated one week and find themselves denied service in a restaurant or a bar the next week. And uh, uh, 
1964, in July of 1964, the Civil Rights Act was finally passed, uh, a federal statute that prohibited discrimination in public establishments like restaurants and bars. And the act was passed while the Dodgers were on a road trip. And they found themselves in St. Louis in a hotel where black and white players alike were permitted to stay. What the black players were made to understand that they were not welcome in the hotel's restaurant, that they, could, that they would be fed the hotel's food, but it would be brought to them by room service. Well, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed in July of that year, uh, that hotel and other uh, previously segregated establishments in the country had to abide by the new law. And Maury Wills didn't hesitate in going down and immediately eating in that restaurant. And he ate in it, had a good time. Uh, the service was fine. And he rushed back very excited to, the ho- to his hotel room, which he shared at that time to his close friend and roommate, John Roseboro, whom he also called Rumi and said, Rumi, we got to go down. You got to come down with me. They treated me fine. The service was good. The food was good. Let's go down there and have something to eat. And John Roseboro couldn't bring himself to do it at that moment. He had been uh, so often discriminated against in his life, particularly during his minor league years. There was a lot of pain and scar tissue that had been emotional scar tissue that had built up. And uh, uh, John Roseboro really didn't want anything to do at that moment with an an establishment that had uh, discriminated against African-Americans in the past. So these were complicated issues. And then in 1965, as the Watts riots began, Maury Wills co-owned a dry cleaners that was just outside or a ways outside the riot area, but fair, but close enough to it, Greg, that Maury and his partner, he had a white partner, were concerned what might happen if the riot spread. And so you had the odd sight on hot August afternoons in 1965 in Los Angeles of this electrifying star, Maury Will, standing on this hot sidewalk in front of this little dry cleaners in Los Angeles, sending the signal to people in the community that if the riot spread, this business belonged to him and that he prayed it not be touched. And Maury would stand out on that hot sidewalk for hours and then go off to the ballpark and play a game. So these were the kinds of challenge, you know, when when ball players, uh, black and white today, talk about the challenges they have to face, and they have many. Uh, it's it's it is important for history to record that no era of players uh, face challenges so so no. formidable yeah, right. as the challenges that Maury and Maury Wills and Lou Johnson and other African-American athletes faced in the 1960s, and that these kind of noble men could not only um, uh, continue to play ball, but win championships on the field uh, while inspiring 
uh, tens of thousands, uh, if not hundreds of thousands, of young athletes, black and white, around the country, uh, is is amazing, and and that is uh, that is their real legacy. Uh, those and kind it, of it contributions. I mean, it really is, and that's why I'm glad that you wrote this book because we haven't even covered the book. I mean, listeners, you have to get this book because it covers. You know, we're talking about social issues too, but we're not even we're not, we won't have time to touch on the whole union issue with Marvin Miller. Oh, right. Because that's a whole right. you know, that's a whole hour in itself doing that. But I want you to conclude with um, Maury again, as far as the story about Colfax. When I think they bring Maury, the Dodgers bring Maury back years later to be a coach, and I think maybe a potential regular coach, not just spring training coach, and Colfax does something that at the time it seems like he's not helping Maury, but actually he is. And just talk about that. Sure, sure. And 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 just before I comment on that, uh, Greg, uh, just one comment about uh, the players' union. This would be one of the wonderful things about the 1960s for the players was that they could look at the change taking place all around them. Black and white players could look at the civil rights movement and the change happening there. They could look at the dissent that had sprung from the Vietnam War, and they they saw all that happening. They saw how America was changing, and they realized that they could get changes in in how players were being treated by baseball ownership and management. And it was that that really set in motion. It provided the impetus for the creation of the players union. Um, as to as, as to your other question, I I, I think uh, Greg just lead into that for me again. The uh, what happens is that uh, Maury is like he's asked to come back as a coach yes. in spring training. Yeah, uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and and so Maury after his baseball retirement. Uh, ran into a drug problem, and, uh, and Maury has talked very candidly about this. And uh, uh, at some point, uh, the New York Mets had hired Sandy to be an instructional coach for their team, and uh, the New York Mets were co-owned by a close friend of Sandy Koufax's and Maury was thriving with the Mets. He was doing very well in that position. The Mets loved him. Uh, his life had been straightened out. And uh, Jeff Torborg, who was contemplating taking a new managerial position and was considering hiring Maury for this other team, had a discussion with Koufax about his interest in Maury and hiring him as a coach. And Sandy, with brotherly intensity, said to Torborg, essentially, leave Maury alone. He's doing well with the Mets. Uh, No need to take him out of a good situation. Leave him be. He's thriving there and uh, um, let him continue to let him continue to do well there. What that anecdote, I think, reveals is just how close those three men were. 
They were all they all wanted the best for one another. And at that period in their lives, it was Maury who was trying to come back from some personal difficulties. Sandy saw that Maury was thriving in New York and wanted him to remain there rather than being uprooted and placed in another town, another club. And uh, and Torborg, for his part, when Sandy said to him, leave Maury alone, uh, Torborg immediately understood. Torborg had been the catcher uh, the night Sandy had thrown his perfect game in 1965. So they were close as well, Greg. And so the three, you, you were talking about three men who had love and concern for each other that rivaled that of the closest brothers. So Torborg indeed left Maury alone. Maury continued to work with the Mets, and eventually uh, Maury would come back to the Dodgers as an instructional coach. So it's wonderful in an era especially, Greg, when you hear about players losing touch with one another and when the bonds aren't quite so tight, to be reminded of a team and an age where men of different backgrounds and races uh, were absolutely committed to one another. And that's what you bring out in this book. And I'm just happy to have you on. And the name of the book again is the last innocence, the collision of the turbulent sixties in the Los Angeles Dodgers. I've been talking to the author, Michael Leahy and Michael, if anyone wants to reach you, how can they reach you? Oh, you know, the best place is probably on my Facebook page. Uh, They can, uh, uh, if they just uh, uh, Google me and the title of the book, The Last Innocence, Michael Leahy, The Last Innocence, uh, my Facebook page will come up and they'll be able to leave me a comment there. And uh, The Last Innocence is available at all bookstores and at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. You'll be able to get it anywhere, and I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to hear about readers' reactions to the book. And Greg, I can't thank you enough for having me on. These have been uh, wonderful questions. Thank you so much, and thank you for writing a great book. Hope to meet you sometime. I'll get back to the D.C. area at some point. You take care. You too, Greg. And again, that was Michael Lee, author of the book *The Last Innocence* on Harper, the collision of the turbulent '60s and the Los Angeles Dodgers, and. I thought I was going to keep him on for maybe a half hour, but the book is, I mean, he's just engaging and the book is just very important. It's not, again, you don't have to be a baseball fan. You don't have to like sports, appreciate this book because it's about personalities and what was going on in the sixties and how he said, and I said at the beginning of the show, history keeps repeating itself. The Watts insurrection was based on issues with the police and the community. And that's what's going on right now. So everything repeats itself, and you have athletes who back then, like we were saying, except for Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and later on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who didn't say any, who couldn't say anything, who really couldn't say anything. And because of the threat of losing a job, because there was no unions, anything like that at that time. So these guys, you know, had all this in them all these years, and to bring it out in this book and talk about their experiences and to thrive as World champions, all-star players during that period, like Michael was saying, was just incredible. So, yeah, pick up the book, The Last Innocence. I know you'll enjoy it. And we're going to shift gears right now. We're going to go from baseball and 
social issues of the 60s. We're going to do right now some new music. So I picked up some new music here because this is the Root and Root Show. And we do talk and also we play some music. So I'm going to play right now uh, the new one from, this is from the um, CD Black Pearls. This is Will Downing. And he's doing the old um, Sherelle song, Everything I Miss at Home. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
my shoulders I thought the end would be easier than this I thought my heart had grown colder But the warmth of your kiss I can't dismiss Though my past has left me bruised I ain't hiding from the truth When the truth won't let me lie Right next to you But it's holding on And it's holding strong Even though I tried to make it play the part But I can't fake it It keeps holding on And it's holding strong Even though I tried to break it Heaven knows that I can't shake it Holding on Holding on Times that were harder I remember the taste of bitterness Won't you help me, my father Help me fall in the love that I have missed Though my past has left me bruised I ain't hiding from the truth When the truth won't let me me lie right next to you but it's holding on and it's holding strong even though I tried to make it play the part but I can't fake it it keeps holding on and it's holding strong even though I tried to break it heaven knows that I can't shake it
Well, it's not far down to paradise At least it's not for me And if the wind is right, you can sail away And find tranquility Oh, the canvas can do miracles Just you wait and see Do you believe me? It's not far to never, never land No reason to pretend And if the wind is right You can find the joy of innocence again Oh, the canvas can do miracles Just you wait and see Believe me Oh, believe me
And that was the one and only Phyllis Hyman, the great Phyllis Hyman. You'll hear some noise in the background now because I got the windows open and somebody's mowing the lawn, but that was Phyllis Hyman, the classic, The Answer Is You. And before that, we did um, the sound alike. It's new. I played her a number of times on the show, Tony Red, and she sounds just like Phyllis Hyman to me. And that was Sailing. Before that, we did uh, Gregory Porter and Holding On. Then we did Candice Springs doing the war song, The World is a Ghetto. And before that, we did the new one by Keith Sweat featuring Takiya Mason and just the two of us. I, I, I'm crazy. I, I, I really enjoy Keith Sweat. I could do a whole show on Keith Sweat. A lot of people would probably like not listen to me again if I did that, but Keith Sweat's all right with me. He's cool with me. Before that, we did Sherelle and Everything I Miss at Home. And then we did the new version of that with Will Downing on his new CD, Black Pearls, and everything I miss at home on the Root and Root Show. And that was kind of a slow jam segment of the show. And first of all, I want to say hi to those who are listening either on iTunes, because most folks listen to the show on a delayed basis. They don't listen really live. So it's either on iTunes, on blogtalkradio.com on a delayed basis, somewhere on social media, and also on Wednesdays on K-U-H-S dot O-R-G, I'm sorry, dot com. <laughs> but K-U-H-S in Denver, Denver Radio, created by the great Henry Archuleta. Listen to me on Wednesdays, and maybe I'll be back on some other times there, but definitely on Wednesdays. So just say hi to all my buddies out there in Denver, and we're going to get to more music right now. We're going to do one, and I'm dedicating this to a buddy of mine who's out in Denver, uh, Jim Kruger, because he suggested I... Go see this guy live, which I'm going to do in, in two weeks. And this is um, a little bit of Zydeco music. We haven't done any Zydeco in quite a while on the Root & Root Show. And I'm going to do Chubby Carrier in Zydeco shoes. So get your Zydeco, Zydeco, that's easy for me to say, Zydeco shoes on. And let's dance now on the Root & Root Show. <laughs>
Friend. 
not a joke now, it's a parade Behind the truck, getting a non-stop winding all day And we're not giving up, not even if the rain comes down That's not bad we Try them, can't cut the speed. 
I was dancing around so much I forgot to turn on the mic. But, <laughs> but that was the uh, one and only Nadine Sutherland, one of my my wife there, and that was um, Enemy Blood. That's her new one, and she's talking about the revolutionaries in her blood, Marcus Garvey, Bob Marley, and so many other folks. And before that, we did Nadine Sutherland again, but with uh, Mr. Vegas and Magical. And before that, we did uh, Miller Quince, along with Cuddy Ranks and some other folks, and How to Water, and that's all this is reggae here. And before that, we did, we went down to a little bit of Soka, and this was Allison Hines, another one of my wives, and that was a parade, and we started to set off with uh, Chubby Carey and Zydeco Shoes. I hope you enjoyed that segment of the Root and Root Show, and I just, you know, Hope you were dancing. Hope you were enjoying that, you know, enjoying the music there. I'll get to some more music. I think I'm going to go back into, let's go back into the Wayback Machine. And we're going to do, I think I'll do a DJ Cool. You know, just a little fun, old time hip hop. And uh, we're going to do DJ Cool out of Southeast DC, by the way. And what the hell are you doing? So that's the name of the song. Let's hear this on the Root and Root Show. What what the hell are you doing here? Better get up and dance. Another hand singer, and I will know as the king's hand swinger. I rock jams with the 
what you're going to do. That's all I'm going to say. But the thing is, um, learn, you know, and if you're going to be out, you know, it's, I'm beginning to wonder, you know, if uh, protests were, they worked at one time, but I know there needs to be other things going on and not violence, but go inward, work in your community. I'm talking about all races now. I'm not just talking about African-Americans, but it's time now. And it's time to just study each other's history of folks of color in particular. African-Americans, you need to know the history of the country. You need to, you know, because so many people don't know it. And that's what we try to do on this show, the Root and Root Show, just to bring you just history and just things you may not know about, never taught in school or anywhere. And, you know, it's just time to do that more and more. Just learn about yourself. You know, like the the guy I had on earlier, the author, uh, Michael Leahy, his book is, you know, The Last Innocence. And it's about, it's, you know, it's, a baseball book, when you look at the cover, though, you have a picture of the L.A. Dodgers of the 60s. Also, you got Martin Luther King. You got the Watts insurrection on the front. You have John Kennedy. And, you know, you have, you know, and you have the Dodgers. And it's more than just about sports. It's about social history. And as I was said earlier in the program, things go around. And you're seeing that right now. If you're listening to this in the middle of July during what's been going on and the various shootings and protests off the country on police issues, police brutality, and just, you know, just things like that. Just keep in mind, keep an open mind as far as, and listen, and don't do what everyone says you should do. Open your minds, open your hearts, and just see what alternatives you can use and what you can bring back to your neighborhood. But the time is to go more inward and not so much going out in the streets because it's not solving anything. Not solving anything. As I, again, I said, folks got to begin to 
know the history, learn history of this country, why it was formed, and what you can do to make some positive changes, not negative changes, but positive changes. So, you know, and I was, you know, originally I was thinking about doing a whole show on what what has been going on throughout the country, but I, you know, I will, um, I've done, I've done so many shows, I'll continue to do shows on issues of race and history of this country and what, you know, what has gone on. So I will continue to do that. But those, you know, but if there's enough clamoring for it, if you want me just to open the mics and just do a whole show on just folks to express themselves. I may do that down, the, you know, sometime down the road because I haven't done one of those shows in a while. I just had just open the phones up and just say, just talk. Yes. Cause so many people have a lot of things to say. So I may, I probably will do that in the future. But in the meantime, again, I just want to thank Michael Leahy for being on here talking about this great, superb book that he wrote on called The Last Innocence, The Collision of the Turbulent 60s and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And also I want to thank those of you who are following the show. And if you're new to the program, if you're new to the program, you know, you can reach me at Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D on Facebook. And not my public figure Facebook site, but the regular Facebook site, because that's where all the information is. You can go on Twitter, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam. Hashtag Unifix, yes, named after the group out of Baltimore in the 70s, the Slow Jam group. You can also go on the Blog Talk Radio site, look for Root and Root Show, and you can leave messages there and follow us there, because there's so many folks that have joined this program and listen in and put, you know, sometimes you can put these on, you know, on other places on social media. I'm just really just thankful for that. But I just, you know, if you have some suggestions, because a lot of folks, a lot of the topics are based on folks like you who call me, email me and just say, well, you know, you ought to do this topic or, you, you know, you should consider reading this book. And I am more than happy to do it, you know, and then we're going and we continue to do that. And by the way, you can reach me also on Hotmail, on email, if you want to do that at Unifix again, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam, at Hotmail.com. So, yeah, reach me there and reach me in all the other places I mentioned, but I enjoy talking to listeners like yourself and just learning because I learn as you learn, and that's what this is all about. So, again, this is Greg Rashid with the Root & Root Show, and we'll see you next time. And You know, I used to say we come on. Fridays and Saturdays, but I am doing, you know, it's going to be weird because I'm doing a lot of shows all at once and people listen to them when they, at their convenience. And I like it that way. I really like it that way. So again, this is Greg Rasheed going love and going peace. And we'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. (laughs) 